0: All right, Romans chapter 8. We're still in Romans chapter 8. You know where we are. We're looking at how many words? We're looking at six very important words, and these words are found in Romans chapter 8. Now, we're not just looking at these six words, obviously, because we're working through the whole book. But since we got to this section, I wanted to break it down by looking at these six words individually, because these words are just so much controversy and debate surrounding them. So I've tried everything I can to approach it in a way to try to eliminate some of the controversy. And again, I think the reason there's so much controversy is because I think people people see the word and instead of stopping to think about it, they just want to react. They see it and they react. They, they don't want to think about it and, and work through it because what, as soon as you... We have a tendency, as soon as we hear something that we don't like, we have a tendency to get defensive and try to debate it instead of trying to consider it. Right? This is very common in the theological world. Right? You're, you're having a discussion, you throw out an idea that goes against their theology instead of stopping going, okay, let me see, okay, let me consider this. Okay, what scriptures are you using? Okay, what has happened in church history? No, 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 it's just, you're wrong! Just immediate emotion. And that's when we're dealing with emotion. That's when we start responding via emotion and not from the perspective of a, the text. What, what ultimately matters when we're dealing with the Bible is what? What's the most, most important thing when we're dealing with the Bible? What does the text say? And what does it mean based off what it says? Not what we want, like, like what comforts us, what makes us feel good, what makes us happy. All of those issues are irrelevant. Does does that make sense to everyone? I, I hope so. Okay. Let's go through this. Romans chapter 8. The more I think about this section, the more I read it, the more I am kind of, I am. I, at one point I was very understanding of why this would create so many problems. Now I'm becoming less and less patient with it because I think if you just read this, I don't know how you you don't, see that what it says but you'll, I'll explain here in a minute. All right, everybody ready? Romans chapter 8. The first word is found in what verse? 29. So let's go through verse 29. Everybody got there. If we may not advance this far today and that's okay because I really want us to I, I'm hoping I can explain this in a way that the light comes on you know for everyone and everybody's like ah that makes sense. I know I've already explained it a couple of times but I want to try to explain it again. All right, so everybody's got their thinking caps on? Here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Speaking of God, for whom he, that's God, right? Everybody agree? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now let's just stop here and I want you thinking caps on. Some argue that this foreknowledge is not, is not just foreknowledge of a person, but that, that this is what God does. He looks through, this, through the, the portals of time. He foresees that, say, Emma's going to choose him. And because Emma's going to choose him, then he will ultimately elect her. All right? But there's a lot of issues with this, right? If God foreknows that Emma is going to choose him, then why does he do, need to do the second thing? What's the second word? Why does he need to predestinate her if he already has foreseen that she's going to choose him? He doesn't need to predetermine anything because he's already seen that Emma on her own is going to choose him, correct? Does anything need to be predestinated? Right? If I foreknow that if I sit a box of rat poison over there next to Levi, that he's going to eat it, right? Do I need to predestinate him to do it? The answer should be no, because I already foreknow he's going to do it, unless my knowledge is not what? Perfect. If my knowledge is not perfect, then... Then you would call into question, well, then how do I even know what I know? And if I know it, then how can I predetermine it if my, my knowledge is not perfect? What would be required for me to pr- uh, predetermine it? If I foreknow that it's going to happen, then even if you're going to say, I would ha- well, first, I wouldn't even need to predetermine it, but if I have to predetermine it, then my knowledge would have to be perfect, right? Which then if my knowledge is perfect, then why would I need to predetermine it? See you see, where we're, you see what I'm trying to do here? If, God for, if you're going to look at this entire section that God foresees that people are going to believe, he would not need to predestine anyone to believe because he's already foreseen that they're going to do it. So what is he predetermining? What would be the answer? He wouldn't be predetermining anything because he's already foreseen it. But if he foresees it and he predetermines it, then what does that indicate? Say it. Knowledge and knowledge is perfect. It it implies that God's the one involved in all of it. He's the one in charge of all of it. Remember, that you have two systems here. System number one is God simply knows what you're going to do, but you're doing it freely on your own choice. God's not controlling it in any way, shape, or form. Well, then why does he predetermine it? predeterminate requires what? That he's actually determining what's going to happen when? Before. That's what the whole pre part is, right? Okay, right? before they even exist. All right, so I just want you to see. Now, and, and you say, well, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe I can find a way out of this. It gets worse, doesn't it? Because those he foreknows, he predestines. These are p- specific people, Correct. Doesn't say he foreknows everyone, because these are specific people. How do we know they're specific people? Because the people he foreknows, he predestines, and those he predestines, he calls, and those he calls, whoa. Is everyone justified? If not everyone is justified, then what can, now logically we just take a step backwards. Is everyone justified? I want everyone to say this out loud. Is everyone justified? Therefore, is everyone called? Therefore, is everyone predestined? Therefore, is everyone foreknown? Not in this this particular case, right? Does God know all things beforehand? Obviously. Is there a call that may be applicable to all people? Yes, but clearly in this case, he knows a specific group of people who he predetermines for a specific reason, then he calls them, then he justifies them. Is there any way to get out of that? You say, well, I don't like Calvinism. Don't call it Calvinism. Call it Romans 8. I want to make sure everyone knows, Romans 8 was written before Calvin. Has nothing to do with John Calvin. Calvin doesn't come along for a very long time. In fact, if we believe the is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then then it's not about John Calvin, it's about God. I want to read it again. So what does God do? Let's go to Romans chapter 8. I know some of this, I'm just kind of doing it more in a review instead of just like a self-contained sermon, um, but that's okay. For whom, that's God, for whom he did, so for whom he, the he is there is God, for whom he did foreknow. He know, he foreknows a certain number, uh, he knows someone, right? We'll just say it that way. Agreed? He also did what? Predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, right? Them he also called, and whom he called, he also justified. I just, does so, so, so everybody understand how to explain? So, if you're ever having a dispute here, where, where do you start this dispute? Just start it with the justification. And what's the obvious question you should ask anyone? Is everyone justified? What's their answer going to be? If they say yes, they're universalist, and then you've got to stop worrying about Calvinism. Stop worrying about Romans 8. You're going to have to go to verses that talk about people dying and going to hell, going, can you explain this to me? How about Revelation 20? Right? Doesn't the Bible seem to indicate that there are going to be people who do not go to heaven? All right, so clearly, not everyone is justified. Like, at that point, they've already thrown out the whole Bible, so you don't even, I mean, you had a different problem. All Christians are going to tell you, not everyone is justified. Now, they may try to say this, not everyone's justified, but, 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 but it's because of their own will. Don't, don't even go there. Just say, question, is everyone justified? No. Is everyone called? They're going to say yes. You say, well, if everyone's called, then why isn't everyone justified? So that immediately means we have to understand calling to have what? A general and effectual call. The effectual call leads to the ones being justified, all right? Then the predestined. Now, that's the question. If God is not doing anything, then he doesn't need to predetermine anything. The minute he predestines something, that's not him just waiting to see what Emma's going to do. That's him predetermining what Emma's going to do. Does everyone agree? And then there's the foreknowledge. All right? So I just, the more I read that, the more like I realize there's, you're trapped with that verse. You're just literally trapped. Does everybody understand? He foreknows. Clearly, he's, he's foreknowing as someone specific. Is that not what's indicated there? Because that person he foreknows, he does what? He predestines. Right there means he's predetermining something. What's being predetermined in the context? Thank you. And then he calls and then he justifies, right? We haven't got to the glorified part, but yeah. Now, last week we spent all of the time focusing on calling. I was going to do a part two, but I, I, I think we did a good enough job. What do we need to know about calling? Two callings, what are they? The general gospel, okay, goes out to everyone. The effectual calling, does everybody understand how this works? What's a gen- someone tell me what a general call is. <clears throat> Presenting the gospel, sharing the gospel. It can be a sermon. It can be a podcast. It can be you talking to someone. You present the gospel to someone, right? Okay? If you're a parent, you've presented the gospel to your children, right? That's the general call. So every kid raised in a Christian home, you've received the general call. End of story, right? Now, what's the effectual call? So work of God, whereby he takes the general call, the preaching of God's word, and then what happens? Well, he brings them to salvation. He regenerates them. He brings them to faith. Right? I think we gave a specific definition of the call, did we not? What is it? It's an act of God the Father. Speaking through the general call which God summons people to himself and they respond to saving faith. And why did they respond? Well, because the effectual call is effectual. He's the one bringing them, right? And now we can get into uh, uh, the ordus salutis, the order of salvation, right? And remember, there's a debate. Does regeneration precede faith or does faith produce regeneration, right? And what do we believe? All right, regeneration precedes faith because you got to be regenerated to be, so that you can believe. You can't believe because you are dead. Dead people can't believe. All right, so all right, that's a whole different discussion, but I got that. So what are we going to be looking at today? Justification. We're going to be looking at justification, all right? And I think this is so... Uh, this is so important. We've talked about justification a million different ways. So I'm, I'm going to be borrowing a lot from Grudem. I, you know, I'm just going to kind of see where we want to go here. I didn't even label this a part one. We, we, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on justification. Could we not? Yes? All right. So let's do this. The words justification in Romans 8, correct? Just quickly, uh, everyone, if you have the Blue Letter Bible app, go ahead and pull up your uh, mobile devices. Pull up the word justification. In fact, I'll just do this as well. I was going to skip this part, but since we've done this with all the other words, we'll need to do it here as well. All right, so let me go here. Pull up the book of Romans, chapter 8. I wasn't even going to do this, but I think just to be consistent, all right? um, We have justified in verse 30, correct? Verse 30, and pull up the antilinear, all right, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, and the word justified is this word. Strong's G, 1344, dikaio, 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 all right, dekao means, or it's, uh, it's used how many times? 40 times, okay, in the King James. It's translated the following ways. 37 times it's translated as what? 37 times justify, one time be freed, one time be righteous, and one time justifier. What's Strong's definition for? Dika'o. To render or regard just or innocent. Free or... Justifier, be righteous. So simply put, what does justify mean? To be regarded as just or innocent. You're regarded as just or innocent. God, the one who knew, predetermined, called, justifies you. He puts you in a situation where you now are regarded as what? Innocent or just. Innocent or just. Everybody got that? You're regarded that way. Now, we'll we'll talk more about what that means. Okay, it's used 40 times uh, at the outline of biblical usage to render righteous or such he ought to be to show exhibit one to be righteous such as he is and wishes himself to consider to declare pronounce one to be just righteous as such as he ought to be can be used in a lot of different uh, ways. All right, everybody got that pretty simple, pretty straightforward. All right, so how do we define justification? All right, Uh, give me a second here. I skipped a bunch of pages here. I need to go back to where we need to be. All right, go back to the doctrine of justification here. All my notes here. All right, give me a second. All right, here we go. I think this is the chapter... Now that's regeneration. We want okay, give me one second. I hate when it does that. All right, give me one second. Are we there? Are we there? Yeah justification. All right here we go. Here's the definition we're going to go with. everybody ready? We may define justification as this. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which... We'll stop right there. Justification is what? An instantaneous legal act of God in which he... Tell me when you got that. Justification is what? An instantaneous legal act of God. In which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So justification is what? Instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, does what? Thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. All right. Now, I'm just going to make sure we have. Anybody repeat that? Is everybody good? I'm sorry, I wasn't looking to see if anybody needed me to repeat it. One more time? Okay, good, because I want to make sure we all have this down. I don't know how much of Grudem I'm going to use here. I'm using his definition, but I, I don't know if I'm going to go through all of his discussion because we've talked about it so many times, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it down. Here we go. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. right, everybody got it? All right, now, a couple of basic things from this. Just go with, let's just take the definition apart. First of all, it's what? It's an instantaneous legal act. All right, now, the fact that it's instantaneous means that justification is not a process, it's not something that we have to go through in order to try to become justified, get justified, stay justified. It's an instantaneous act where I am justified. But it's a legal act. All right? It's a legal act. In other words, this is going to be a legal declaration. A legal declaration. And in this legal declaration, what two things are going to occur? What's the first one? Okay. Is that, is that how we put it in our definition? All right. Sins are forgiven. All right. And uh, Christ's righteousness is belonging to us. All right. So in this legal act, God legally declares that your sins are forgiven, and that whose righteousness now belongs to you, Christ's righteousness belongs to you. Now, what's very key? What what sets us apart one thousand percent from Catholicism? One. The Catholicism doesn't see it as being an instantaneous act. Two, they don't see it as a legal act. They see it as what? A process that begins with what? The infusion of righteousness. Now, now they do believe your sins are forgiven. But basically, let's go through the way the Catholic system works. We'll take, say, Levi, when he was eight days old, he would have come up here, the priest would have grabbed some water, would have sprinkled it and said baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, May make the sign of the cross on his head, forehead. And then basically what has happened according to Catholicism? His original sin is gone, and he's been infused with the righteousness, practical righteousness, and now what is Levi to do? He's got to work with it, cooperate it, feed it, strengthen it, go on and on and on and on. He's got to keep going, keep going, and what may happen? He's in a state of grace at that point. He can, he can stop being in a state of grace. Then he has to get back in a state of grace. Acts of penance, sacraments, all of confession, trying to earn indulgences, all the different things you have to do. We say no, we reject that outright. We say that it's an instantaneous legal act which your sins are forgiven. And you are, you are declared, or you are, you receive as yours the righteousness of Christ. Not infused into you, but accredited to you. Does everybody understand that? So what does that mean? Okay, let's look at this on the most practical level. Emma has made a profession of faith, right? Emma's been baptized, correct? But we believe at the moment of her profession of faith, the moment she put her faith in Christ, what occurred? She was declared to be righteous. Did, did Emma become any more righteous? No, I want to stress that. Did Emma become any more righteous? Let's say Lydia's yet to get saved, right? Emma has gotten saved, right? Right? Is Emma did, When Emma became saved, did she become any more righteous than Lydia? From a practical point, Lydia may even be more righteous than Emma. You say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. It makes perfect sense from the Protestant perspective, because Emma's salvation is not based on her practical righteousness versus Lydia's practical righteousness. It's based off the perfect righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to her account. So she is seen as, in this way, how righteous is Emma compared to Lydia? Perfectly righteous, and Lydia isn't. But in a practical sense, Lydia may actually be more in a practical way. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but it can be. Was, did, David dem- did David demonstrate to be more righteous than everyone around him? Did he demonstrate to be more righteous than the husband he had killed? But he was declared to be what? Righteous. A man after God's own heart. Because your justification, when you believe instantaneously, your sins are forgiven, so all of your sins are gone, right? And the righteousness of Christ is accredited to your account. In fact, how does the definition read according to Grudem? Your sins are forgiven. Christ's righteousness belongs to you. It's not infused into you. You are declared to be. Is that a process? No, you're instantaneously declared to be what? Perfect righteous. Now The world, this is where the world doesn't sometimes understand it. They're like, well, you're going to be a hypocrite. Yeah, I'm going to be a hypocrite. In a sense, because am I ever going to live up and practice to what I am positionally? no. So the way to avoid hypocrisy is we have to acknowledge that. That my salvation is not based on that I'm better than you. My salvation is based on that I have an imputed righteousness that you don't have. And how did I get that righteousness? By going to church? By reading my Bible? By giving money? By faith? And where did we get the faith? From God. That that gets into a whole different issue. All right. Does everybody understand that? Okay? Does that, I know that for some people, now immediately what some Christians want to do, but, 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 if Emma really believes, she's going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, O, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z, and use some other alphabets as well. That may, you may want to say that, but her salvation is based off what? Not those things she did. In fact, what is the proof of her salvation? The righteousness of Christ, right? How can you prove an imputed righteousness? It's imputed. It's not infused. Does that make sense? It's like Luther, and I'm paraphrasing, Luther basically says justification is basically covering the dung that we are with a perfect righteousness. But guess what we still are? Dung, okay? That, I mean, that's that Lutheran, you know, that Luther, that German uh, nice way of saying things. Uh, yeah, And he probably even said it in a far more blunt way than I'm using the dung word to be nice. He probably said it in an, even a more blunt way. But do you see the point he's trying to make? We're still dung. We still stink. But what are we covered in? That's right, just now, please know, Catholics would lose their mind hearing what we're saying right now. In fact, you know what Catholics would say? That's the reason that there's so much ungodliness in the Protestant church. And you, you have to just laugh when they say nonsense like that, right? Yeah, the Catholic church that's had one of the biggest scandals, you know, of sex abuse scandals in the history of everything. Yeah, but you're right. We're not right. Don't say that nonsense, right? The, does, does their system make Catholics more righteous than Protestants? No. Does our system make us more righteous than Catholics? Obviously not. It makes us more righteous in one way. Before God, we're more righteous because we believe in an imputed righteousness, not an infused. But every time Christians try to come along and try to fix it, right? Christians always like, oh, man, if you say that, and, then, and that's what Paul does in Romans. Doesn't he get nervous that that's what people may do? Well, I'm going to continue to live in sin. He says, God forbid. But the point is, is we're all going to continue to sin. So what is justification? Instantaneous legal act. And what occurs? All right. So this is why, listen to me. This is why, again, I'm just going to go back to, to using Emma. She makes a profession of faith. How am I to view Emma? Sins are gone, so she's a new creature. Old things have all things have become new. Is it true practically? Absolutely. Like Joel was quick to say no. Joel was quick. I mean, he was quick on that. He hasn't answered one question in 13 years, and all of a sudden, boom, when I talk about Emma being a good person, he's like, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She's complete garbage. She's a dumpster fire of a person. Okay? All right? And so, and he knows that. He knows that. Because it's true. And it's true of what? Everyone else in this room. And sometimes I think what happens is kids raised in a Christian home, they're raised in a Christian home, and when they grow up, they'll say something like, oh, y'all a bunch of hypocrites. Y'all do this, and y'all did that, and you do this, and you did that. And you want to just choke them out and go, what did you not understand? Our salvation was based off an imputed righteousness. What word do you not get? But sometimes it's our own fault because we convince them that Christianity is all about being perfect and good. Now, I'm not saying that excuse it. Please don't think I'm excusing sin. I want to make sure we understand, though. It's hard. In a kid's mind, they think Christianity is all about what? Rules. What is Christianity actually about? Receiving the the imputed righteousness of Christ. Are there? I'm not saying there aren't. Does God not give us commands and how to live? I'm not saying He doesn't. But what is it? What is it? Remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees had all the rules, did they not? And what did Jesus say to them about all of their rules? All clean, but dirty on the inside. Because guess what? All the behavioral modification and all the cleaning up on the outside that will never fix what we are. We are dung. So the only hope I have of salvation is not behavioral modification. It's I need a righteousness that is what? Perfect. That I can never lose. Can I ever lose the forgiveness of sins? No, they're forgiven. They wouldn't be forgiven, would they, right? Okay. They wouldn't be forgiven. They would be like, okay, I temporarily forgive them and I hold them right here. Now, let's see what you, oh, oh, I'm bringing them back. No, they're not, that's not forgiven. Can I lose a righteousness that I never earned? Then I would have to be earning it, Alright? So, it's an instantaneous legal act where our sins are forgiven. We are, we are, we, and how, again, I want to read the words exactly. I don't want to say the words Incorrectly. What does he say about the righteousness? Is, is de, determined to be ours, or how does he say it? Um, our sins are forgiven at Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And then number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. And now, are you declared to be righteous in his sight because you have become practically righteous? You're declared to be righteous in his sight for what reason? Is imputed to you, covered. So, before God, I... And perfect. In practice, I'm far from it. Does that excuse my practice? No. Do we have to deal with that practice? Yes. But what's the good news? It's no matter how far I fall, what can I cling to? That's why, if, if you... I, I don't know, I can say to any parent who has young kids, I can say to parents, uh, you know, all, all, as, as parents we always look back at what we could have done, should have done, should we explain this more, should we have done this more. But the one thing you want every, and I don't care who they are. I don't care who they are. Let every person, I don't care what sins they've committed. I don't care if it was adultery, prostitution, drug dealing, murder. I don't care what it was. Tell them not to run from the church Run to the church. Sometimes people will be like, well, I can never walk into church based on what I've done. That, no, that's where, don't run from it, run to it. Because you, the, the, the Christ is about offering you an imputed righteousness. Right? It's almost like, oh, I, I, did, I did too much wrong. I can never go back to Christ. What are you talking about? Salvation is based off an imputed righteousness, not based on how many things you did right or did wrong. But even our kids raised in a Christian home will say things like that. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, I can never. What do you mean you can never? You're saved by an imputed righteousness. You're basing it off what you do. But there's something based into our brain that we always want to turn Christianity into a performance-based system. Now, there is performance involved, but before God, I can't get any better than I am. Before God, I can't get any more forgiven than I am. Now, everybody else may want to drag you out back and take the brand and brand you with whatever letter of sin you committed. They put the scarlet letter on you. But while they're branding you, guess what? I'm still declared perfectly righteous. And they can't change that. Doesn't excuse any behavior. But that's the reality. Does that make sense? All right. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly. All right. uh. uh, and then second, he declares us to be righteous. Okay, we got all of it. Any questions there about any of that, ju- that definition? All right, I'm going to go through a lot of this quickly because this a lot of this we know. Um, but uh, So uh, I'm going to go through Grudem's outline. The first thing he puts down is justification includes a legal declaration by God. Justification includes a legal declaration by God. You can write that down if you need to. Alright, The use of the word justify in the Bible indicates that justification is a legal declaration by God. The verb justify in the New Testament has a range of meanings, but a very common sense is to declare righteous. For example, we read, When they heard that all the people and the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. That's Luke 7.29. Everyone look at Luke 7.29 really quick. Luke 7.29. I want you to look at it carefully. I should do this as a Bible study exercise, what I should do here at Luke 7.29. All right, everybody read Luke 7.29 in their translation. You can look at it. What does it say the people did? They justified God. Everybody see that where they say it justifies God? They justified God. Everybody see it? Does all the Bible say that? Everybody ever, when all of them say it? Right. Now, wh- why do you need to draw from that? What, what's the lesson you need to draw from that? They declared God to be righteous. or, uh, they, or the, I'm sorry. What did the, how does the text state it? I don't have it in front. They justified, they justified God. They did not make God just, right? They declared God to be Just. Does that make sense? All right. The way Grudem writes it is this way. Um, Of course, the people and the tax collectors did not make God to be righteous. That would be impossible for anyone to do. Rather, they declared God to be righteous. This is also the sense of the term in a passage where the New Testament talks about us being declared righteous by God. Romans 3.20 and he goes through all the scriptures. The sense is particular evident, for example, in Romans 4, 5. And to one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Here Paul cannot mean that God makes the ungodly to be righteous by changing them internally and make them morally perfect, for then that would have merit or works of their own to depend on. Rather, he means that God declares the ungodly to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of their good works, but on the basis of what? Their faith. All right? Everybody understand that? Yes? Amen? Any questions there? That's Romans 4, 5 if you need to look at it. Romans 4, 5. Okay? So, we are not declared righteous because of what we do. We are declared righteous on the basis of what? We are declared righteous on the basis of what? Faith. Okay, very good. Right? Because of faith. We believe we are declared righteous. And how can we be declared righteous? We can be declared righteous because our righteousness has been what? Imputed to our account. I cannot stress that enough. You can be declared righteous because a righteousness that is not your own has been accredited to your account. Does anybody understand that? I know, that, I know y'all are looking at me like we've covered this a million times. I know this, but we have to understand why. Why is this so important to understand this? Because remember the whole argument here is that, no, no, no. God doesn't predetermine it. God does, this is all God, right? He foreknew. He predetermines. He calls. He, you couldn't justify yourself. You couldn't call yourself. This has to be all God. Right? Again, if, if it's not all God, then what is he predetermining? Everyone can get around the foreknowledge. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah He predetermines you choose, but that's him doing it, right? <laughs> okay? So like if he's predetermining anything, then all the arguments about us doing anything are over. Does everybody see that? So you can try to change the foreknowledge to not mean what it appears to say, but predetermining, he predetermines what? That a certain group of people are going to be called and those people he's going to call, he's going to do what? He's going to justify. And justify there is referring to what? Salvation. That's why we have to understand justification. right? Everybody got that Romans 4 or 5 passage? Everybody got that down? All right. I'm going to read that again. And to one who does not work, But trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Paul cannot mean that God makes the ungodly to be righteous by changing them internally and making them morally perfect. For then they would have merit or works of their own to depend on. Rather, he means that God declares the ungodly to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of their good works, but in response to their faith. And I'll stop right here and just argue against the Catholic position. Because here's what never makes any sense to me. If, if when Levi is a baby, he was infused with the perfect righteousness of God, shouldn't that become evident and that makes him practically righteous? Shouldn't that be seen like, I don't know, in like 2.3 seconds? Have you ever met a kid who's baptized as a baby? Oh wait, here's one. Is she perfectly righteous? Anybody, anybody ever talked to her? Nobody's going to say anything. We could call her husband. We could could talk to the kids. (laughs) She's like telling the kids, we know she's not perfect, right? Well, so if she was infused with the perfect righteousness of God, why does it not work? Like they always talk, everyone always wants to talk about this. To me, that's the biggest proof that Catholicism is a fraud your baby is infused with perfect righteousness and that's at eight days old. How long do you realize it didn't work? The time you get, by the time they get into the nursery, you can go to any Catholic school. All those kids were supposedly infused with perfect righteousness. You went to a Catholic school, right? Didn't you? Or did you? A Catholic boarding school. And, and it was, who was teaching you? The nuns, okay, right, okay, and and they had to do what sometimes because I wouldn't behave. Punish? Why would you have to be? Why? They should be? The, I should want the job to teach at a Catholic school, right? I like give me that job. Can you imagine being a teacher for kids who are perfectly righteous? Wouldn't it be awesome? Like if I was a teacher in a Catholic school, I'd be taking my desk and throwing it against the wall, going, "What is wrong? You're all perfectly righteous. You're infused with perfect righteousness. Act like it." But I wouldn't even have to tell them to act like it, right? And part, well, then the kids could say, "You're infused with perfect righteousness. Why are you throwing the desk at me? Okay. I'm a Protestant pretending to be a Catholic." Okay, all right, So, but you get the idea. In other words, if the kid is infused with perfect righteousness, why does it not last? And they say you have to cooperate with it. Why do I have to cooperate with it? If, if imperfect righteousness has been infused into me, what is there to cooperate with? What should be the only thing in me? See, this is another situation where you have a theological idea that no one asks practical questions to. That same thing I ask questions to us about our theology. That doesn't make any sense. And I watched it as a, when I was a Lutheran. I baptized the baby. Everyone welcome your new brother and sister in the Lord. Boom, boom, you know, he's saved. And then then when I was working with the youth in the Lutheran church, I was like, the water is broken in this church. Because I don't think one of the kids in those Lutheran churches even cared about anything related to God. Well, what happened to the water? Does Does that make any sense? So what's the one thing I do know? Every person I know who's ever made a profession in faith, what do I know about them? Catholic, non-Catholic, I don't care. Any person you know who, who claims to believe in Jesus, what do you know about them? Absolutely, You may not know everything about them, but there's one thing you all know about them. Because they're just like you. They're going to keep sinning. And they're going to keep sinning. And they're going to sin in what ways? The one thing Catholics get right is when it's time for Confession. Right? When you go through Catholic confession, and when I'm saying the general confession done in the Mass, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. Right? Grievous sin, and you, you hit your chest, saying it's my fault, nobody else, my sin. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things I have done and the things I have left undone. Lutherans do the same confession. I don't know why you have to be confessing everything, because everyone in the church was supposedly infused with perfect righteousness. Well, in the, Catholic, in the Lutheran, it's a little different, but in the Catholic situation. Why? Because you've got to, why, why, why does, do you understand why I don't understand the cooperating part? If I've been infused with it, there's nothing to cooperate with. It should take, dominate everything else, should it not? So in every theology, what is one thing true? Everyone who claims to be a Christian is still what? a sinner. So if you're still a sinner, then what is your only hope of salvation? It better be a righteousness not our own because if my salvation has anything to do with what I do, where am I all going to end up? We're going to end up in hell. Because we all sin. And how many sins would it requ- would require what how many sins is necessary to put me in hell? In fact, if I'm guilty of one point of the law, so what's my only hope? A righteousness that's not mine. And how do I get that righteousness? By faith. And and who determines who gets it? Nobody likes that. But again, go back to Romans 8. Those he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies. That's all the work of We don't even our part doesn't even come in there, does it? All right. Oh, we gotta oh we gotta go quicker. I mean, I think we've taken justification apart every way that I could, but all right. Uh let me let me go with this here. Um the idea that justification is a legal declaration is quite evident also when justification is contrasted with condemnation. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Romans eight, thirty three through thirty-four. To condemn someone is to to declare that person guilty. The opposition of condemnation is justification, which in this context means to declare someone not guilty. This is also evident from the fact that God's act of justifying is given as Paul's answer to the possibility of someone being accused or charged against God's people, such as a declaration of guilt, cannot stand in the face of God's declaration of righteousness. So who can condemn any of God's elect? Nobody but God, but God won't, decla- won't condemn us because we have already been declared to be what? Righteous. Right? No no one can. Now, that doesn't mean, I want to make it very clear. That doesn't mean that if you know, on a Friday night, Brenda finds me under an underpass, you know, with a heroin needle in my arm, okay, that she's not to just go, well, you know, okay, can't see anything. No, she would have to confront me one-on-one saying, you know, that's a sin, and then hopefully I would have to repent. I'm not saying it excuses it, but what cannot, being found under a bridge with a heroin needle would not remove what? The imputed righteousness. And some of you don't like to hear that. If I was found under a bridge with a heroin needle in my arm, that would still not remove Christ's righteousness. Righteousness. Now, I know what you're going to say. But, 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 that would mean that you never got it. So now, what are you using to determine the imputed righteousness? Practical actions. And practical actions don't have anything to do with my imputed righteousness because it's what kind of a righteousness? Imputed. Alien. Foreign. You see, remember, we, we, we worked through all of these issues now, I'm going to get 900 emails going, no, 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 no. If a person does this and this and this, they cannot be saved. All right, well, then salvation is based off what then? i say, no, 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 works prove it. Well, now you're taking works to prove an imputed righteousness. How can works prove an imputed righteousness? The only way works could prove a righteousness is if that righteousness is what? Infused. There you go. Meaning that many Protestants walk us right back into where? Catholicism. And I didn't catch on to this until I started studying Catholicism. And then I was like, wait a minute. I've basically been teaching Catholicism. What have I done wrong? I didn't realize that. Catholicism is the thing that made me go, wait a minute. If I'm judging everyone's salvation based off their action then it would have to be an infused righteousness, not an imputed righteousness, because your actions can't prove an imputed righteousness. Because it's imputed. Didn't do anything to earn it. And it doesn't change me. All right? Now people say, but a change is to... I understand a change is to happen. But what? here's what we do know. Clearly the change is not the same in everyone. And clearly, no, ever, no, does anyone believe that the change makes you perfect? So no, if the change doesn't make you perfect, that means you, whatever change you demand has to also have some idea of allowing for what? Sin and failure. Well, then how much sin and... So who gets to... Remember when we looked at all the tests that people give? What do they always do? All right, if you're, gonna, if you're truly a Christian, you will love God. And then what are the next thing they say? But not perfectly... So then how do, I, how, do you, how do you grade that, right? You see the problem here? Okay, oh man, we're out of time. We're out of time. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on justification because I think you all know all of this, all right? Um, so we understand uh, that justification is a legal declaration. Everybody got that? All right. Um, uh, you can go ahead and write this one down. God declares us to be just in his sight. Uh, in God's legal declaration of justification, he specifically declares that we are just in his sight. The de- declaration involves two things. First, it means that he declares that we have no penalty to pay for sin, including past, present, and future sins. Everybody got that? When God declares you to be, uh, uh, declares you to be just in his sight, he declares that you have no penalty to pay for sin, including past, present, and future There is therefore, what kind of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No condemnation. All right. In this sense, those who are justified have no penalty to pay for sin. This means that we are not subject to any charge of guilt or condemnation. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one can bring any charge to God's elect because all of our sins have been taken care of. All right. So he declares that we have no penalty to pay for sin. All right? Um, how, how further do we want to go down here? Um, uh, but if God merely declared us to be forgiven from our sins, that would not solve our problem entirely, for it would only make us morally neutral before God. We would be in the state that Adam was in before he had done anything wrong. Um, he was not guilty before God, but neither had he earned a record of righteousness before God. The first aspe- aspect of justification in which God declares that our sins are forgiven Uh, And then they give us a picture here. Um, Basically, it's just that our sins are forgiven or gone. However, what else do we need? We must be declared not just that our sins are forgiven. What else do we need to be declared? We must be declared righteous in his sight. So it's not that we're just declared that our sins are forgiven. We're also declared to be perfectly righteous in his sight. And how can we be declared perfectly righteous in his sight? Because of an imputed faith or imputed uh, righteousness, I should say imputed righteousness. All right? Now, there's a much more we could go into justification. We've talked about this a thousand times, so I feel comfortable. Now, if anyone's listening online and you have questions about justification and you've never heard any of this and you're confused, email us, and then we'll come back and I'll do extra teaching on it. So let me go through this again and we'll stop. Everybody ready? All right. How does Romans 8 begin in, in the section we're looking at? It begins with God foreknowing, right? Okay? He foreknows. Now, the people he foreknows, make sure that's very specific. Those he foreknows. God is foreknowing someone, yes? The person he foreknows, he does what? He predestines. Now, remember, if he simply foreknows what you're going to do, then there's no point in predetermining anything, correct? Because if he's predetermining something, then he's doing more than knowing what's going to happen. What is he doing in the next step? He's predetermining what's going to happen, correct? All right. And so, not only does he predestine, what does he do next? He calls. Now, if you say he calls everyone, that may be true. We do believe in a general call. But here, this calling leads to what? Those he calls, he justifies. And justification is a legal act, an instantaneous legal act, in which God does what? Two things our sins are forgiven. Christ's righteousness belonging to us, and number three, declaring us to be righteous. I know Grudem breaks it down into two parts, but I like the three-part breakdown better. Okay, I always change everyone's outline, but you get the idea. All right, any questions? All right, you sure? All right. So, a person is in ju- justification. Does anything change your position before God? I'm now declared a righteous. What changes practically? Not in justification. Now you say, well, sanctification things change, but you got to be got to be careful how we understand it because sometimes what we do is we start we 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 almost then turn sanctification back to the justification and we almost create a Catholic problem. All right, And justification, I'm I'm, I'm declared when 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 I on the I think it was an I think it was in October. I think it was maybe in September. No, it had to be October. It was in October 19, whatever, 80 something, when I walked into First Baptist Church. The only reason I ended up there that night is because the uh the uh I was I was at school and these girls at school were trying to witness to this guy who was a Satanist. And he was talking all kinds of garbage about Satanism, making up all kinds of stuff. And so I stepped in and was like, come on, dude. That's not what Satanism is t- And I was trying to help the girls out, right? Even though I didn't care anything about what they had to say. And they were like, you should come to our church. And I'm like, yeah, yeah you, can all, you can all drop dead. I'm not going anywhere. Well, then I go home and it's chaos that happens in my home. So I got in the car and I left and guess where I ended up? First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas. I can't tell you what was said. To this day, I don't even remember what was preached. I just know that at some point while I was sitting there, I realized I'm a sinner. There is a God and I'm going to go to hell. And the next thing you know, I was laying in the pew, weeping uncontrollably like I like somebody thought I was having a drug reaction. I was like absolutely just wailing like a Middle Eastern woman. Right. They didn't know what was going. They stopped the service That's how bad it was and just basically had the altar call. And I came up there was like, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. You know, this is a mess. And then, of course, then they made a horrible mistake because almost like instantaneously they put me behind the pulpit, like literally right after my salvation, right? And I don't know even what I said. And everyone starts crying. It's a whole like big dude to teenagers are crying. Everybody's crying. And then that's, that's how I God, God ultimately saved me. But you know what? When I got up and walked out of that church, you know what was true positionally? I was 100 percent perfectly righteous before God. My sins had been completely forgiven. But you know what wasn't changed? I was still a sinner. And guess what? I demonstrated over and over and over and over that I'm still a sinner. And you know what I still demonstrate today? that I'm still a sinner. And you can look like you're spiritually, uh, you know, better than I am. But you know what you demonstrate by, even by that look? <laughs> you're still a sinner. Thank God that God justified you. And he justified you because he called you. And he called you because he predestined you. And he predestined you because he foreknew you. Meaning that you didn't have anything to do. So stop acting like you're better than anybody else. And be grateful that he saved you. All right. Well, God, we come before you this morning. It's such a very powerful, powerful subject. So many different ways we could cover the doctrine of justification. I know this was review for everyone here, but hopefully the review will still be taken to heart and it will still make us understand that just the beauty of this section and the way it fits together and that we would thank you and rejoice in what you've done for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.